Hello, Blooners, Balloonheads, Ballesters. We haven't decided what we want to call our fans yet. This is your uh, host, Zach, with a friendly content warning. We gave the internet a place to ask whatever weird nerd questions they wanted to ask, and it turns out the internet is a terrifying place. While this season has been pretty good so far, be aware that uh, we are sometimes, as our editor puts it, adjacent to adult subjects. Also, we swear like sailors. Hi everybody, I'm Tyler. And I'm Zach. We're your aeronauts and we're back with more word balloons. We've been flying high on our own hot air but have stopped our journey to Azeroth to answer your nerdy questions. So with that in mind, Zach, what is our question this week? Which Starfleet captain committed the most war crimes? I have I, <laughs> I have no answer. You I'm... know, I was legitimately surprised that I didn't just find like a list on like Reddit or something like that? Cause I, I looked. I mean, I have an answer, but it's just a wild guess without any research. Let just me hear to your guess. I bet I know what your guess is. Cause I am not the Star Trek person sitting at this table. So uh, I'm going to throw out Admiral Marcus. You know, I didn't think of him because I was including like the most, uh, like the main character captains, but yeah, Admiral Marcus committed several war crimes. Did bomb lots of places, including his own planet, like was behind bombings of it. Mm -hmm. Unleashed Khan Noonien Singh. Like weird white guy Khan Noonien Singh, but still. It's still Khan. Uh, he was the, the bad guy John Harrison. in um, uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. Okay. Uh, Robocop. Peter Sellers. Yes. Or Peter Ro Peter Weller, not Peter Sellers. Very different character. <laughs> Very different there, character. Uh, or person. Um, so, that would have been amazing. Though. So when I was... Editor Steven here. I want to say my guess is probably Kirk, but this is just this is just me. I again not uh, not the biggest Star Trek fan in the room here, so I'm gonna defer that to you. When but. I was trying to look it up, I came up with like a criteria of which captains I was allowed to use for this. So any captain who was a main captain in one of the series. So we have Kirk, Picard, Cisco from Deep Space Nine, Janeway, Archer from Enterprise. And I'm not using anyone from Discovery because they go through a new captain every season. And also one of them was secretly someone from the mirror dimension. And definitely did the most. That guy did absolutely <laughs> evil. Captain Lorca did the most war crimes. <laughs> like if we're being straightforward, honest about it, it was a hundred percent Lorca evil Lorca. Good Lorca seemed like a good guy, but we're going to probably put the asterisk of definitely evil. Definitely not a captain. Yeah, like, I, he wasn't actually a Starfleet captain. He was pretending to be a Starfleet captain, so I, I knocked him out. And uh, Captain Freeman probably definitely didn't. Captain Freeman? Uh, Lower Decks. Oh, yeah, no, there's no way that Lower Decks Captain Freeman did it. She doesn't do enough to commit war crimes. Like, there's not enough <laughs> happening. There's too much on war crime cleanup. So, understanding that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes of Star Trek... And while I would happily watch through all of them, I don't have time to watch through all of them and, like, mark down the war crimes. And I figure for war crimes, like, violates the Geneva Convention kind of thing. We have to kind of guess here. Kirk violates the Prime Directive like every other episode. 
not necessarily a war crime. Although he does sneak weapons to people in a couple of cases. Or... Yes. Uh, sneak across enemy lines and steal forbidden technology that he had an agreement not to, like... The, the Treaty of Algernon... Agree that the Federation agreed not to develop a cloaking technology, but Kirk sure fucking stole some, like pretended to be a. Oh, they didn't develop it; they just took it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He they developed it. We utilized it for our, <laughs> our own survival. He did on multiple occasions surrender and then kill the people <laughs> who he like showed up to accept his surrender, which is considered a no no, including you know surrendering. Beaming off the ship and then setting the ship to explode. Oh, shit. Star Trek Three. Oh, yeah. That's like, true. Let's be honest. I'm, I can't 100% say that's a war crime because I work at a grocery store and not, you know, defending the Geneva Convention. But that feels questionable on if the rules. If it's not, it's close in my book. He, it should be, maybe. The Klingons do try to get Kirk arrested for various war crimes on multiple occasions throughout those movies. And, I mean, like, they're not wrong, necessarily. They definitely get in an alliance with the Klingons eventually, so, like, um, they come to some sort of agreeable terms with them. So, like, they're probably not wrong in all contexts. Everybody's... There's, there's villains on every side, so... So, of the most war crimes, it's probably Kirk, but I can't prove that. So I started looking at who did the biggest war crimes. Who did the war crimes that affected the most people? And it comes down to two people. It's either Janeway or Cisco. It's Cisco, but we're going to discuss Janeway first. <laughs> Janeway, amongst other things, gives the Borg a biological weapon that will wipe out species 8472, which is a species from an area called fluidic space. It's a, it's like a reality next door, basically. That the Borg infiltrated and attacked. And Janeway made an agreement with the Borg, not knowing that the Borg started this fight, although she should have freaking known because it's the Borg. Yeah. Of you will let us through Borg space and we will give and we will help you fight species 8472. When first presented 8472, this is the Borg name. Each species has just a number designation. So, like, humans would be just some... Yeah, uh, I, I've heard it. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. Um, I'm not that bad. 8472 was originally presented as kind of like a biological alternative to the Borg. The Borg want to assimilate. 8472 just wants to kill you and have their stuff take over. But then you later find out that species 8472 can communicate and is not just like this unstoppable hive mind terror. So she did sort of help the Borg kind of start to commit genocide. On that front. Oh, not kind of. By the sounds no, of it. No, 100% did. did. Yes. <laughs> um, it didn't, like, end up on genocide, and she helped, like, I think stop it. But still, like, it's a war crime. Oh. Um, also, in one of the most controversial episodes of Voyager, it's a great episode, though. Uh, two characters, Tuvok and Neelix, are merged together in a transporter accident to create a new character named Tuvix. They eventually come up with a way to separate Tuvix, but Tuvix doesn't want to be separated. He wants to live. Wants to be who yes, they are. He want, you know, he's like, they're my parents. I'm sorry they're dead, but like, I shouldn't have to sacrifice my life and my existence for them. Like, you can't ask me to kill myself. This is a wild episode I want to watch. It's one of the most morally gray episodes of Star Trek, and I don't know if I agree or disagree with Janeway at the end of the day. 
but I still love that they're talking about this. It's so good. And Janeway, and he, he tries to refuse, and Janeway forces him to do Ooh. it. Forces him, uh, like, you know, takes him down, and he tries to, like, run, and there's security guards there. He tries to call out to the other ship, like, the other bridge crew, and he's like, don't you know this is wrong, in a really raw moment. And in a really tragic moment, he forgives them. And he's like, you guys are going to have to live with this, and that's on you, but I know that you think you're, like, trying to do what's right. And Janeway does have to decide, do I, like, let one person die, or do I let two people die? Which choice do I make? Like, I have this impossible call. The argument is that they were, in theory, already dead. And he isn't. So there's some bodily autonomy he ignores. And to the point that the doctor refuses to do the procedure. Janeway has to do it herself. Ooh. It if is, a doctor's not doing it, hard pass. Because he cannot do a, uh action against the person's will. It is the most morally debated episode, and I still... Janeway's not right, but I don't 100% know that she's wrong either, but she definitely kills a dude. Yeah. There's no right answer to this, I think. Yeah. She also... There's at, only wrong and There's wronger. a quote from Doctor Who of sometimes there's no good answer, but you still have to make a choice. And that's kind of where this is. Yeah. Uh, and then there's another time where some Starfleet people have betrayed their office and, and like, tortured these creatures to get home somehow. And these creatures are now trying to hunt them down. And she basically shoves a, they, they've got like a shield to keep it. The creatures can't get through. And to get the answer she needs from one of these people that betrayed their Starfleet oath, she shoves them outside of the shield and just this is like answer, or I will let that thing eat you. Jesus. Like, there is some Janeway who is trapped alone on the far side of the galaxy with no access to Starfleet is the character that sometimes makes the choices that Picard never even has to make. And I'm a, actually a really big Janeway fan, but there's some stuff that you like, good lord woman. But what's scary is she doesn't win when it comes to which uh, the war crimes that cause the most damage. Because Cisco's got two things that you're like, how are you not in prison? Yeah, let's like, hear this. Because how, how do you top mm -hmm. what I've already heard? First one, is Cisco was betrayed by a man named Ian Eddington, who was his chief of security, who joined the Maquis, who was a group that were freedom fighters against Cardassians. They're kind of betrayed as terrorists, kind of betrayed as not. This is before 2001, so people were a lot more willing to be on the side of... The, the, the terrorist versus freedom fighter had a little less... Uh, uh, Distinction? Emotion mm -hmm. than it does now. Although the Maquis had some really legitimate complaints. Like, let's let's be real honest about it there. But Cisco takes the betrayal extremely personally. He, like, you betrayed your uniform and you betrayed me. Yikes. He's trying to chase down Eddington. And Eddington keeps sending him, because Eddington's just fucking with him too. And Eddington keeps sending him lines from Les Mis, betraying Cisco as the cop who was trying to... In Les Mis, the main character gets arrested for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his family. And a cop spends years trying to chase him down and, like, catch him for this victimless crime. Like, to, you know, keep him alive. Like, now, Eddington set off a couple of bombs, so he is definitely not the guy <laughs> that just stole a loaf of bread. But he keeps beating Sisko, and Sisko's like, the only way I'll be able to beat him, because he, he's not bound by these rules that I am, 
is to be the bad guy. So he sets off these like bombs that make a planet that Eddington is on, that is a Maquis homeworld, completely uninhabitable. And he's like, you will surrender or everyone on this planet will die. And he does it. And Eddington surrenders and they get the people off the planet, but the planet is rendered uninhabitable. Jesus. I hate this episode, to be honest with you. It is the episode where Cisco goes too far. And oddly, this is not my biggest war crime that he commits. Do you happen to know the name of the episode? I'm curious if it's one of the ones that Ronald Moore wrote. Probably. <laughs> because I'm like, oh, this is all sounding very Battlestar Galactic-y. The episode is called For the Uniform. And actually, the character's name is Michael Eddington, not Ian Eddington. Mm. Ian Eddington is a comic book artist. Thank you for fixing that so I don't have to come in with an editor's note later. I've got a thing. It is a really great episode. It's just a very difficult episode at the same time. It sounds intense. But the biggest crime that he ever does is he assassinates some ambassadors to force the Romulans, to trick the Romulans into joining a war. Oof. Uh... Deep Space Nine is wild. Yeah, it is. So the Dominion has gone to war with the Alpha Quadrant. The Dominion being from a different quadrant of space, huge enemy, big, this is a big ongoing plot line throughout Deep Space Nine. The Romulans make a non-aggression pact with the Dominion. So it's pretty much just the Klingons and the Federation versus the Dominion, and they're slowly losing. They're just outnumbered. He needs to bring the Romulans into the war on his side, or they will lose. And the entire Alpha Quadrant will be destroyed. And this whole episode is him recording a captain's log. It's called In the Pale Moonlight, confessing his sins. One of the characters in this, uh, in Deep Space Nine, is a former Cardassian spy named Garrick. And he convinces Garrick to help him bring the uh, Romulans into the war by making fake information, like making a fake piece of information revealing that the uh, Dominion was going to betray the Romulans. But Garrick takes it like six steps further because oh, no. he realizes that this isn't going to be enough. So he makes it so it is... He makes it so the Romulans realize, like the Romulan ambassador realizes that information is a fake. And when the Romulan ambassador goes to leave Deep Space Nine on his shuttle to go home and report to Romulus, who will then join the Dominion side, he places a bomb on that shuttle and blows up the shuttle, leaving just enough remains to make it look like the Dominion blew up this Romulan shuttle to hide the fact that they had revealed this in, they had found, this ambassador had found this information uh, saying that they were, that they were going to betray him. So the Romulans join on the Federation and Klingon side, thanks to fake evidence planted by Sisko and Garrick. And this is Cisco unloading this entire thing and being like, I've betrayed everything basically that I stand for. But uh, Alpha Quadrant might have a chance of being alive at the end of it because of this. So I can deal with it. And the final bit is him repeating, I can deal with it. And like clearly trying to convince himself as like the PTSD and trauma of what he just did sets in. And then he erases this captain's log so no one will ever know about it. Oof. So Cisco brings a major political power into a war on false information after helping assassinate one of their ambassadors. Yeah. So I'm going to give war crimes to Cisco on this one. 
All right. <laughs> Sorry, that was very long. It is hard to explain war crimes, it turns out. Uh, it's like they're uh, kind of terrible or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in order to keep our journey going, Yay! we're going to have to pass them <laughs> Luckily, Zach is stuffed to the brim with sort of genre facts. I'll prod him a bit and see what shakes loose. Remember, any misses or mistakes will have to be made up for at the end of our trip. Today, we'll keep with our expeditions theme of DC teen characters. So, Zach, what knowledge can you drop on Sandy the Golden Boy? Ooh, I've got this one. Sandy the Golden Boy was the original sidekick of the Sandman. Now, when we say the Sandman, we don't mean Neil Gaiman's Sandman. We mean the original 1930s Sandman who wore an opera cloak and a gas mask and a fedora and shot gas guns at people. This guy. He's perfect. If you ever want to read anything involving him, Matt Wagner writes a book called uh, Sandman Mystery Theater, Mm -hmm. which is an excellent fucking book. Also, Matt Wagner's excellent. Matt Wagner's excellent. No one writes noir better than Matt Wagner, and this book is designed for that. Sandy the Golden Boy was his sidekick. He was the nephew of Sandman's romantic interest, whose name I do not remember off the top of my head. Uh, Deanne Belmont. Deanne Belmont, who was fun because she actually participated in the Sandman's adventures. So she wasn't just a damsel in distress. She had, like, power in her own right. That's unheard Um, of. Yes. I don't know how great it was in the original comics, but in Sandman Mystery Theater, she's at least as big a character as Sandman is. Now, they eventually change up the Sandman and Sandy the Golden Boy to be a more traditional superhero look. He gets a pretty boring, kind of yellowy costume with a black cowl, kind of like Batman's without the ears. It's not a great look. And some is black and some is purple. Whatever. The purple one I remember being cooler. Yeah, but in both cases, ignore it and go back to the gas mask like he eventually does, because it's a great look. Now, during this time, they're testing something that is just called a silicone gun. What this means is really unclear. But when an explo- uh, something goes wrong and it explodes, Sandy is transformed into a silicon sand monster. Cool. His body is turned into sand. And like out of control. And he's actually frozen for a while as they try and figure out how to fix it. He is eventually saved in an adventure involving both Superman and Batman as well, like years later. And he comes back and he helps reform the JSA, the Justice Society of America. And he just takes on the identity Sand instead of like Sandy. And they do make some jokes at the time of like, oh, you're going to be like, it's the 90s, a sand blast, sandstorm. He goes, let's just... Let's just go with sand. Extreme sand. And he, Extreme Justice is a terrible comic book. Um, (laughs) And he he just gets kind of an updated version of the sand costume with more modern tech and a more modern gas mask. He later becomes the Sandman in his own right, like called Sandman and gets a more Sandman looking costume. And he starts having terrible prophetic dreams of things that are going to happen which is another Sandman thing that got slipped in at some point. And I never understood why. Well, Um, Sandman dreams. It was cool. Yeah. There's been like eight The Sandman in DC, let alone Marvel's The Sandman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sandy, honestly, when he became Sandman again and started getting the dreams and stuff, it was by that point that Jeff Johns was kind of just phoning it in on JSA and it 
wasn't very good. I do love the Sandy Sandman outfit, though. It's a great costume. costume. It looks great. I was really excited for what was going to happen, but unfortunately, Jeff Johns was just really tired of writing the book by that point, and you could tell. So it was disappointing that nothing really came out of it. Um, I don't think Sand has been used in the last decade because I don't think he's appeared anywhere in the new 52. But that original JSA series that he was in is honestly one of the best team books of that era. And that was an era that was putting out pretty solid team books from DC. Does he still have, is he still made of sand? Yes, and he can travel through the earth that way. What the fuck? That's cool. How did I forget to mention that part? I'm sorry. Um, yeah, he's still sand and he can travel through the earth of just like, well, here I go. And like melt into the earth and travel through the rocks and stuff. Like now my question is, is he just like consciousness, like swapping through sand or is he like moving his sand? It's not a hundred percent clear, that, but the that, visually it's portrayed as him like swimming. Oh, okay. Through the earth. I love that. I love everything about sand. That's very rad. It gets everywhere. I hate sand. <laughs> do you do you happen to have his real name? I think it's actually sand for the. It's his last name's like Hawkinson. You're called it's Hawk, Hawk, Sanderson Hawkins. Sanderson Hawkins. That's it. Sandy Hawkins. Sanderson Hawkins. Sandy Hawkins. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just gotta remind myself how little they were paid to do this at the time. Yeah, when you're get pay, getting paid a dollar a page, you just whatever comes out. <laughs> the names just... of these things are so, so amazing. I think that was. I think that was good. I don't oh. think there has to be any redemption. On no, it. <laughs> I think he covered it. I yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying. Oh, I guess I have one little bit of trivia. His mask is in Rip Hunter's office in Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, oh, cool! I didn't know oh, that. That's rad. Nice. Yeah, so uh, that's it for today, folks. We're taking off, but before we go, we'd like to remind you to hit subscribe and check out all of our sister shows over at earvrm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. Other ways to get in touch with and follow us will be in the show notes, and as always, we'd like to give special thanks to our editor, Stephen Gady, and to Ian Ford for our theme song, Tracks. Until next time, I'm Tyler. I'm Zach. Up, up, and away.